0: Hey friends, it's Kevin Pang here. Look, there are so many food magazines and recipe websites out there. I'm gonna try to convince you that America's Test Kitchen is different. We spend nearly $11,000 to develop every recipe and that's an actual figure. Like our Texas smoked beef brisket, for example. That took us two years and 500 pounds of beef just to nail down. So if you want to give our site a test spin, I'm happy to give you 14 days to poke around and try our ATK recipes. Go to ATKpodcast.com and I'll set you up. All right, here we go. On to this week's show. I hear a lot of jokes about living in the Midwest that were corn-fed jello salad chompers whose idea of soup, especially if you're from Wisconsin, is beer plus cheese. And you know what? It's all true. And frankly, having been a Midwesterner for 20 years and now raising a family outside Chicago, we've learned to embrace our eccentricities as Midwest charm. So, I was a journalist at the Chicago Tribune when I first met reporter Courtney Crowder. Who was an intern back then. She's also from Illinois. But in 2015, Courtney took a journalism job at the Des Moines Register. She's now one of the most recognizable bylines in the state of Iowa, where she's the Iowa columnist telling stories of the American Midwest. Let's pick up my conversation with Courtney. The Iowa State Fair was just about to begin when we chatted, and we're talking about a subject near and dear to the hearts of Iowans. We're talking about butter as a prelude to our story about one woman who used it in an unexpected and pioneering way. So I understand that the Iowa State Fair has been going on for well over a century. And in fact, today when this episode drops is the first day of the Minnesota State Fair. Tell me about this butter cow because I've seen lots of photos about this. People are taking selfies. They're even getting engaged in front of this butter cow.
1: The State Fair's nickname is the Great Get-Together. It is where people have reunions. It is where people get married. And the butter cow is the pre- eminent thing to see. It is literally a life-size cow made fully out of butter. It's an art form. I like to think of it as using butter as the medium for your art, just like clay or marble or steel or paint. Anything that you would do to express yourself, we're just doing it in butter.
0: So Leonardo da Vinci had a blank canvas, and Michelangelo had a uh, had a slab of marble, and Iowans just have butter. And so rather than just eat it, why not sculpt it?
1: Hey, playing with your food is fun.
0: Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, how one woman used her talent and a big glob of butter to change her life. I'm Kevin Pang. Thanks for listening. Stick around. Reporter Courtney Crowder brings us today's
2: story. Today, we're gonna create butter skyscrapers.
1: Yes, you heard that right, butter skyscrapers. Peel
2: your stick of butter like a banana. So you're using your your hand still on the wax paper, and then you just put it right onto the armature. and stick it all the way down. You're just going for it, which is perfect.
1: Let me translate here. Going for it is Midwestern mom for, wow, in less than a minute, you already have butter up to your elbows, and a glob seemed to have somehow shot onto both your sleeve and your pant leg. But that's fine. I know that in butter sculpting, passion, is nearly as important as the butter itself. I live in Des Moines, Iowa, just a few miles away from the famous Iowa State Fairgrounds. In this state, that is the truly hallowed ground where every year we crown a big boar. It's also at the state fair where at least one politician takes an unfortunate picture with a corn dog. And crucial to our story, It's also at the State Fair, where the line to get just a glimpse of the famed butter cow is regularly 30 minutes long. And right now, I'm sitting in my dining room with bona fide Iowa royalty.
2: My name is Sarah Pratt. I'm the Iowa State Fair butter sculptor. I have been sculpting butter at the Iowa State Fair since 1991, and I took over as the lead sculptor in 2006.
1: As you may have guessed, Sarah really
2: loves butter. I get asked a lot of times, like, are you just sick of butter when the fair is done? And I'm like, no. Like, if anything, I appreciate butter
1: more. Now, butter sculpting is exactly what it sounds like, using butter as a medium for art. Whether that be small butter skyscrapers or giant, elaborate, ornate sculptures. At the Minnesota State Fair, every day, a new 90-pound block of grade-A butter is sculpted into the bust of Princess K of the Milky Way or one of her court members. Princess Kay of the Milky Way, by the way, is the title given to the winner of the Minnesota Dairy Princess Program. Over the 12 days of the fair, all 11 young women who are tasked with acting as goodwill ambassadors for the Minnesota dairy industry have their likeness cast in butter— At the end of the fair, they get to take it home. Weirdest State Fair souvenir, right? And in Iowa, the State Fair's grand butter presentation not only features the traditional full-scale cow modeled completely out of butter, but also an accompanying companion butter sculpture. Over the years, that companion sculpture has ranged from life-size renderings of Iowan and Olympic champion Sean Johnson, musician Garth Brooks the homely husband and wife figures from Grant Wood's American Gothic, and my personal favorite, a 3D butter version of Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. Fabulous. Like, wow. It was an
2: amazing feat of butter sculpture.
1: But who was the first person to look at a stick of butter and think, I see the Venus de Milo.
2: There is a woman in the 1800s She was a wonderful artist by a very young age, just could pick up clay, wild clay, um, and create little things and trinkets and animals.
1: That woman was Caroline Shock Brooks. Caroline was a farm wife who used her natural artistic talents to create little sculptures out of her hand-churned butter. At first, all she'd hoped for was that her unique goods would fetch a higher price at the local market. But when those special butter offerings caught the attention of the 1876 World's Fair Committee, Caroline's unrelenting ambition and unconventional artwork catapulted her into headlines and made her a celebrity the world over. For years, thousands of people would watch as she shaped and manipulated intricate butter portraits. But her connection to butter would forever keep her from being considered a serious artist. To most sculptors at the time, the spread they slapped on their dinner rolls was far from capital A art. No matter how much she studied and practiced, no matter how popular she was or how lauded her work, she'd always be more butter than Botticelli. Despite the art world's disrespect, Caroline never shied away from her humble origins. She was a farm wife and a mother from rural Arkansas and butter helped her carve an entirely new life, one most women of her time wouldn't even dare to dream. Before we get to Caroline, let's acknowledge that food as art goes back to, well, whenever humans first figured out that playing with your meal was fun. The Buddhist tradition of creating torma, which are elaborate religious scenes out of yak butter, goes back to the 15th century. And during the Renaissance, specially shaped butter squares were an incredibly popular banquet hall decoration. Even in Caroline's time, stamping butter with seals or using butter molds was fairly normal. Many of those fancy butter molds can be found in antique stores, and some are still used in professional kitchens today. But Caroline took her sculpting to the extreme. She crafted whimsical bas-relief portraits and sculptures completely freehand. And her skills were especially impressive when you consider refrigeration wasn't really widely available back then.
3: Now we think of butter sculpting more as, oh, maybe you, you carve a cow in butter at a state fair. But she was inspired by classical artwork.
1: That's Darcy Malsby. Darcy's an agricultural journalist, and she's also a farmer who specializes in farm-to-fork culture.
3: I am on my farm out here in Calhoun County, Iowa, west-central Iowa. Up by Lake City and Yetter. Everything's better in
1: Yetter. She's written seven nonfiction books about Iowa and countless magazine articles. She explains that Caroline Shock Brooks not only sculpted freehand, but also selected difficult, complex subjects for her pieces.
3: She was carving the human form, specifically a a mythical female body, into butter. It it was amazing. If you see her work, it looks like an actual woman is sleeping, but this figure is carved out of butter. So the intricacy of Caroline's work was just amazing.
1: What we know about Caroline Shock Brooks comes mostly from small-town news reports of the time and research from rural journalists like Malsby and Midwestern historians like the late professor Pamela Simpson. There's also a small archive of Caroline's personal papers and a few photos of her work housed at the Chicago History Museum. All of this begins to paint a picture of Caroline's life. Caroline was born in 1840 in Cincinnati, which at the time had grown to be the sixth largest city in America. The city was still a few decades away from earning its nickname, the Paris of America, which I gotta believe even Ohioans would say was a bold claim. But Cincinnati was unique for being a cultural hub that wasn't on the Eastern seaboard. Caroline came from a middle-class household. Her dad was a scientist and an inventor who worked on the first steam-powered fire engine, though he would later say his designs were stolen and he never saw financial gain from his creation. Caroline's mother was a homemaker and an amateur watercolor painter. Caroline had an unusually artistic eye from her earliest days, according to what she told a biographer. As a child, she once sculpted the head of Dante, using blue clay she found in a creek bed near her house. And she drew elaborate scenes and whimsical cartoons in the margins of her school notebook. Even her recreations of geometrical shapes or anatomical systems from the day's lessons had detail and depth outside most teenagers' abilities. Caroline graduated from St. Louis Normal School, basically the equivalent of high school, in 1862. Soon after, she married a man named Samuel Brooks. Samuel had left school at age 14 and wasn't as well-educated or refined as his new wife. They bounced around the South, following his various job opportunities with the railroad or placements with the Union Army, until they landed on a small farm outside Helena, Arkansas. For Caroline, a Cincinnati girl through and through, The life of a farm wife would have been vastly different from her upbringing, according to Darcy.
3: For a farm woman like Caroline in the mid to late 1800s, you would have just worked
1: from dawn till dark. It would have been a very demanding
3: lifestyle.
1: From child rearing to running the household to helping on the farm, there wasn't much downtime for farm women. And during that era, America was still settling the frontier. So Caroline would have lived a pretty isolated existence. You were
3: literally stuck on that farm for sometimes weeks at a time. Your life truly revolved around that farm, and a whole lot of that life revolved around food production and food preservation. And that included dealing with milk products and cream and turning a lot of that cream into butter.
1: So there Caroline is, out there on this farm. She's bored, she's artistic, and she has butter. So she does what any woman with literally nothing else to do would. She starts sculpting her butter. Whenever she can, in between taking care of her daughter, finishing her chores, and cooking and cleaning and sewing, she sculpts. Eventually, she begins to sell her little butter shells and little butter animals as a supplement to the farm's lackluster income. According to Darcy, it wasn't uncommon for farm women to make extra income, have a side hustle, if you will, to help make ends meet.
3: So Caroline was kind of following in that same tradition that if your crops failed, and that was a very real possibility during this time period, you use the talents and abilities you had. And for women like Caroline, that was cooking, that was working with food. And she found a novel way to make a name for herself and bring in income beyond just the basics of making just basic butter.
1: A couple of years into her carving, Caroline made a butter portrait for a church fundraiser. Dutiful husband Samuel carried the bass relief seven miles on horseback to the sale. The piece was so popular, it brought in enough money to cover the entire cost of a new roof. Curious reporters descended, and news of this butter lady slowly made its way around the Upper South. It piqued the interest of a Memphis businessman who commissioned a butter portrait of Mary Queen of Scots. He displayed Caroline's butterwork in his office to the delight of local newspapers. They called it an extraordinary phenomenon.
4: The best, most lifelike representation of this woman ever made in this or perhaps any country. So artistic in execution and finish that it seemed like polished stone.
1: But Caroline had haters, too, including at least one reporter who thought she should move on to more cultured mediums.
5: The talented lady should drop the butter paddle and take up the mallet and chisel.
1: Despite the fanfare, the Memphis businessman admits in one of the articles that he, he actually forgot Caroline's name. That story literally ends with the reporter asking, what's her name and where's her home? Which, as a reporter myself, I gotta say, figuring that out seems like his job. But I digress. So, Caroline had some measure of popularity after Mary Queen of Scots' Tennessee outing. But Caroline was mostly local news, an oddity for that specific region of the quickly developing country. However, at this point, Caroline is no longer sculpting on whim alone. She takes her work seriously and hones her craft. This might go without saying, but I want to emphasize that there's something about the butter part of butter sculpting that makes it seem easy. I have little to no artistic skills. I can't draw, and I haven't sculpted since I was using Play-Doh. Still, when the opportunity to sculpt butter came my way, I pictured myself turning out museum-quality pieces. I really believed I was a Derri Degas just waiting to be discovered. But butter sculpting is hard, really hard. And the reality is you have to be a really talented artist to be a really talented butter artist. Let me tell you, if you can't sculpt it in clay, you won't be able to do it in butter either. So Caroline studies and works at her sculpting, but even as Caroline devotes more of her time to her art, she's mainly hoping to pass the time on her farm. And her audience is still mainly herself, her husband, and their cows. Until she stumbles onto the idea for the piece that would change her life forever. So Caroline is at home one day, probably making butter, when a family friend shows up and is like, this book came for you. The friend hands her a copy of King Renee's Daughter, a Danish folktale. She immediately stops whatever she's doing and starts reading. Okay, now stick with me here. This may feel a little like a book report, but the plot is important to Caroline's story. King Renee's daughter tells the story of Iolanthe, a beautiful princess who became blind after a fire destroyed her house when she was a small child. Since the accident... She's lived her life in a walled garden paradise where her parents, the king and queen, have been able to keep her completely unaware of her blindness. Every night, she goes to bed with the help of a medicine-man type guy who works on a cure while she sleeps. When Iolanthe turns 16, she's supposed to be married off to a young prince. Curious about his soon-to-be bride, that young prince sneaks into the garden and wakes Iolanthe up. They talk, and they sing, and they dance, and they fall madly in love, of course. But when Iolanthe can't distinguish between a white rose and a red one, our young prince realizes she's blind. He tries to explain sight to her, but she's overcome and overwhelmed, and the young prince leaves. Skipping over some subplots here, but Iolanthe approaches her parents and the doctor and is like, I'm blind? But no matter, it turns out, just her luck. The doctor has just cracked the cure, and he can restore Iolanthe's sight. But only if she wants it. She's got a prince waiting for her, and she's no dummy, so yeah, she does. She goes to sleep and wakes to sight and an entirely new life. So, back on the farm... Caroline reads this fairy tale and is so struck with inspiration that she throws the book down and heads straight for her butter. She crafts a bas-relief portrait of Iolanthe sleeping in the exact moment before she wakes up to her new life. The portrait has a bit of a Grecian feel. Iolanthe's face, which is completely relaxed, is plump and her features are angular. Her head is framed by a mop of curly, curly hair. It's serving both Michelangelo and 19th century pinup girl. Caroline calls her piece Dreaming Iolanthe. And she's pretty happy with her portrait. She thinks it's pretty good. So she takes the piece with her to visit family in Cincinnati. And her family is so impressed, they arrange for it to be publicly exhibited. <laughs> Over a two-week period, about 2,000 people paid a quarter to view the butter portrait. And again, local reporters were agog by this new curiosity.
4: There is an exhibition, a strange and beautiful work of art. It is of a female head and relief by Mrs. Caroline S. Brooks. It is made of butter, a most perfect head and bust, something which will impress him at first glance and grow upon him as long as he looks at it. A poem in butter, a richness beyond alabaster,
5: and a softness and smoothness that are very striking. Canvas and marble must give way to the new substance in the fine arts and acknowledge the supremacy of butter.
1: You're probably wondering how Caroline kept these butter sculptures from melting for weeks at a time. The answer? Ice! Caroline could preserve her pieces for months just as long as she kept adding ice. Or if she could talk someone into letting her use a corner of their cold storage unit, which she did with the original Dreaming Iolanthe for about six months. But having ice at this time was a minor miracle. Before ice conveniently came in various cube sizes out of our fridge doors— Getting ice to warm places started by harvesting the frozen water off of lakes and ponds up north. Then you had to pack those cubes with sawdust or pine chips to slow their melting. And finally, you had to load pallets onto boats, barges, railroads, and eventually wagons. We don't know how Caroline got her ice exactly, but the fact that she did is truly an engineering and logistical marvel. But as the first major butter sculptor, Caroline had to figure out the particularities of her work essentially on her own, as Darcy explains.
3: Working with butter is a whole lot different than carving marble. You don't have to worry about keeping the marble cool in the same way that you do have to keep uh, the right texture for your butter. Because if it's too hard, it's difficult to work with. If it's too soft, it melts. It kind of ups your game as an artist and an inventor of how you actually make butter become something more than just a block of fat.
1: Caroline's discoveries came through trial and error including her special two-milk pan system, which kept her work cold and her butter at the perfect sculpting consistency. In the two-pan system, Caroline put her sculpting butter in a small, flat milk pan and used the pan's edges as a kind of frame for the piece. Then she'd place that small pan into a larger milk pan filled with ice, which kept the butter cold enough to retain its shape. As long as she kept filling that larger pan with ice, the butter in the smaller pan would be the right combination of stable yet malleable. In Cincinnati, Dreaming Iolanthe drew literally hundreds of headlines. It also caught the eye of mid 1800s celebrities like Lucy Webb Hayes, the wife of Ohio governor and soon to be elected president, Rutherford B. Hayes. Caroline was asked to exhibit her butter sculpture in the Women's Pavilion during the 1876 Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. It was the first World's Fair to be held in America. The dreaming Iolanthe proved to be so popular again that she was moved out of the Women's Pavilion and into the much larger Memorial Hall. There, 28 guards were required to keep people in an orderly line and away from crowding the work. Even though temperatures reportedly reached over 100 degrees in the shade, Caroline's two-pan system worked. Now, what happens next is a matter of some debate. Was Caroline invited to display her artistic abilities because they were so novel and so interesting? Or was she demanded to display them because then, like now women artists were often suspected of not actually being the hands behind their own work. Her biographer, Cleo Harper, certainly believed it was the latter—
5: the art judges doubted her ability to model such beautiful forms, and to convince them, she took the butter that had been publicly churned in the dairy building, and in the presence of the entire National Commission and the Board of Finance, modeled a beautiful head on the churn top. The doubters doubted no more.
1: Whatever motivated the presentation, Caroline awed indeed. Using the humble tools of a milkmaid, a butter paddle, some cedar sticks, and a camel's hair pencil, she carved about nine pounds of butter into a head in about two hours. And afterward, not only was her work famous, but Caroline herself became famous too.
4: She is kept busy all day answering the questions of curious crowds, writing her autograph on the photographs of Iolanthe, and attending to the ice pack that the piece may not melt away into thin butter.
1: After her World's Fair triumph, Caroline went on a lecture and public sculpting tour. It took her to New York, Boston, Chicago, all across the country. In Des Moines, 2,000 people packed an auditorium at the state fair to watch her sculpt with the accompaniment of a brass band. After Iowa's governor started the show by publicly inspecting the butter for impurities, Caroline walked on stage to dramatic cymbal crashes. Trumpets began to blast, and drums marched to the introduction of La Marseillaise. With her milk pan balanced on an easel, propped just so for the audience's view, Caroline molded the butter into Napoleon's stern face. Then the music switched to the staccato strains of anvil chorus. In swift strokes, Caroline softened the portrait's features, transforming Napoleon into George Washington, right before her audience's eyes. Neither Caroline nor her butter art had ever performed with a full band before, and the staging placed both the artist and the musicians on the same platform. Midway through the show, the music's vibrations caused one of George Washington's shoulders to drift off his body. The crowd gasped. But Caroline caught the butter with her paddle and deftly put it back into place. When Caroline's tour ended in Washington, D.C., she decided to stay in the city a little longer, and then a little longer still. Caroline opened a studio and eventually separated from her husband, which was rarely done in her day. Darcy explains.
3: That's quite a shocking thing for a woman at this time, to go out on your own like this and kind of carve out a new life, no pun intended, but that's what she did. She realized after she had the chance to explore the wider world because of people's demand for her butter art, she wanted to broaden her horizons and she did.
1: With her future squarely in her own hands, Caroline never returned to the farm.
0: After the break, Caroline doesn't look back. Hey, folks, it's Kevin Pang. You know, when I tell people I work at America's Test Kitchen, they assume I have the answer to questions like, what should I bring to a friend's barbecue? Or what should I pack for my kid's lunch? But what do I know? I'm just a podcast host. Hey, Kevin. Just who I need. It's our amazing test cook, Olivia Counter.
2: I got you. Heard of mangoes? They can be used in just about anything.
0: I mean, yeah, they're my favorite fruit, but they go in anything? Really?
2: Yeah, the sweet and tangy flavors are the perfect accent in Cook's Country's seared salmon with mango mint salsa. If you like fruity and refreshing desserts, mangoes brighten up Cook's Illustrated's mango kiwi and blueberry pavlovas. And you can let them stand out, the star of the show, and my personal favorite, Amki Lassi, or Our Take on Mango Lassi.
0: Savory, sweet, refreshing, mangoes fit in without blending in.
2: Unless you blend them, then they blend in.
0: Learn more about the versatility of mangoes at mango.org. And now, back to our story.
1: Now that she was an artist and a single lady in DC, Caroline started to up her game. She was a well-known member of society circles and attended all the city's well-to-do functions. She began taking commissions and started filing patents for her unique butter art processes. After so many years, Caroline had mastered the finer points of working with a challenging medium. But she also had to face the reality that you can't keep butter on ice forever. So one night, she was working away on her butter art in her kitchen, and she wondered if she could replicate how clay sculptors make plaster casts of their work. With those plaster casts, clay sculptors can make more permanent versions of their designs in marble or bronze. If she could do that too, she'd certainly save a lot on ice. Caroline happened to have some plaster lying around, and she's like, let's just see what happens. She finished her butter portrait using the two-pan method. Then she mixed up the plaster and poured it all over her completed butter sculpture. Lo and behold, it set without disturbing the butter. Caroline left it a bit longer to firm up even more. Then she cut a hole in the milk pan and put it over the stove. The butter melted, leaving a perfect plaster cast. And the oily nature of the butter meant the negative was already greased. Now, not only could she make a permanent sculpture, but she didn't even have to lubricate the cast. So in 1876, just as her fame was ascending, Caroline sends in a patent for improvement in the methods of producing
4: lubricated plaster molds for the reproduction of original designs. Said method consisting in modeling the original pattern in butter or equivalent greasy substance, casting the plaster upon and around the same, and then removing said pattern by heat, substantially as specified.
1: But her patent was denied, kicking off years of battles between Caroline and the patent office. Workers at the patent office seemed to believe that there was no difference in making a plaster cast from clay or wax than from butter. And apparently the patent office delivered their rejection in quite the rude fashion. Caroline's lawyer points out in their appeal.
4: We are compelled to say that there was not the slightest necessity for wounding this lady's feelings by the introduction into the official letter, an official condemnation of the art which the applicant has cultivated with such success.
1: Caroline's team argued that using butter through her method leaves the negative already greased, and ready for plaster to be poured into the mold right away. Wax or clay certainly doesn't leave behind inherent lubrication, she says, which makes her invention wholly unique. Caroline's appeal is successful, and she's granted a patent in 1876. But some years later, a new law for patents is passed, and Caroline loses the chance to petition for a renewal. In a letter, she begged a U.S. representative for help.
4: Without an extension of my patent, my specialty will be pilfered from me by usurpers of an art I've spent my life perfecting. Gentlemen, help me to reclaim eight and a half years of my patent rights.
1: While her feud with the patent office is going on, Caroline continued to work and her work continued to draw praise from critics. But praise from critics did not lead to more customers. She picked up some commissions, but did most of her work out of passion. She made busts of people she admired, like the novelist George Eliot and presidents Grant, Garfield, and McKinley. She spun her financial situation to one reporter like this.
4: When I do portrait work, I work until I suit those for whom I am working. When I work for myself, I work until I suit myself. In
1: 1878, Caroline got invited to the Paris Exposition. Finally, she'd hit the big time baby she, Caroline, the farm wife who once made her living off of hand-churning butter in between chores, was going to Paris. The real one, not just the Paris of America. But obstacles began appearing immediately. In that time, she hadn't yet turned her butterworks into plaster on a large scale. So she had to wait for a ship chartered to carry enough ice to keep her creation solid during the long journey from D.C. The delay meant she was late for the exposition and instead had to set up outside the grounds. And as an extra jab, French custom officials listed her cargo as 110 pounds of butter instead of art, which just feels like such a French dig. Caroline stayed in Paris nearly a year before she ran out of funds. She returned with what work she could afford to bring and traveled with those pieces in steerage. You know, the Spirit Airlines economy class of the day. But back in America, her high society connections brought a high price commission from the daughter of Commodore Vanderbilt. Alicia Vanderbilt wanted a sculpture of herself seated on an ornate balcony surrounded by her four children. Caroline worked on the butter model for three years. It was then cast in plaster and sent to Italy for stonemasons to create the marble replica. In an incredible move for the time, Caroline actually went to Italy to supervise the sculpture. And not only is she able to oversee the work on this sculpture, she also gained the trust of the Italian stone cutters who taught her the tricks of their trade and let her work on other sculptures too. This sort of access was unheard of at the time, but Caroline had a charm and a genuine interest that created opportunities. Darcy explains.
3: It's just remarkable to me that a farm woman who had such humble beginnings would even have that opportunity to have that kind of training, that kind of experience in Europe. And it's all because of her own bootstrapping efforts and creativity that led to many new horizons for herself.
1: Caroline spent years in Florence. She cut and sent some 20 marble statues to America. Among the masterpieces was the life-size statue of Lady Godiva. There was also an eight-foot bust and pedestal crafted as a memorial to General Grant, and the pieces to a grand fountain she called Love's Dream. That one had a Birth of Venus vibe, with a maiden rising from the sea on a shell carried by dolphins. And there was also a Cupid in the mix, too, because why not? But her sculpture for Mrs. Vanderbilt was the grandest. Named La Rosa because of the detailed roses used to garnish the balcony, the piece took five years of cutting by as many as 17 men. But the intricacies of its design and its detailed execution is what caught many viewers' eyes, according to Caroline's biographer. La Rosa won Caroline a place in the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago and a trip back stateside. But, according to published newspaper reports, Caroline had apparently, um, died during her extended absence?
5: In January 1893, the sculptor and her creations landed in Chicago after seven years in Florence, only to find herself... Dead, according to published reports and popular belief.
1: To be clear, Caroline was very much alive. And adding to her problems, some of Caroline's marbles got lost in transit. At least one of those giant marbles, the eight foot tall bust of General Grant, was somehow misplaced. Soldiering on, Caroline set up her exhibition space with her brand new marbles. She was proud to show that she had learned a valued and difficult trade, one that many other non-dairy artists weren't even schooled in. But the professional art world shunned her. They called her the butter woman. Even a placard posted near her exhibit read, quote, here is the famous centennial butter sculptress back again, and this time with the success and fame of a professional sculptor, at least to the journalists who interviewed her, end quote. And the audience wanted Caroline the Butter Sculptor, not Caroline the Serious Artist. Her butter demonstrations were so popular that she had to hire a guard for crowd control and was eventually moved to a larger pavilion. But her marbles did not pull the same interests or the same headlines. Both the art world and her fans wanted the old stuff, the stuff from her first World's Fair tour, not the new stuff. For much of the rest of her life, Caroline struggled to make money. Commissions dried up almost entirely, so she resorted to charging admission to watch her sculpt. Her audiences reveled in her demonstrations as a novelty, according to one researcher. But that was far from the prestige of the showings at galleries or exhibits in museums enjoyed by her contemporaries. After petitioning the Memorial Committee, which was planning a grand monument to General Grant, Caroline was given the chance to compete. But she didn't win the final bid. And more than a few times when she traveled to exhibitions around the turn of the century, she'd run out of money to send her sculptures home. Instead, they'd be left at a friend's studio or lost in transit, only to be found in warehouses years later. Both of her Lady Godiva statues were destroyed in the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. She brought them out to California for a show— but she didn't have the means to send them back home. Her general grant bust was finally found in 1896, three years after the Chicago exhibition. It was collecting dust in the back of a shipping yard. When it was discovered, she came to Chicago and did an interview with a few local reporters.
0: Mrs. Brooks told the story of her struggles in the cause of art, illy remunerated in spite of well-nigh universal commendation. But she is hopeful, in the prime of her maturity and with the firm friends she has made in the past, and is confident that continued effort will bring reward. Not that she complains, for she speaks of her life
5: as happy while arduous.
1: Even her beloved La Rosa was, at one point, seemingly abandoned in a warehouse. It was eventually found by a charming woman, as a pamphlet on the works said. The charming woman did find the woman's sculptor, and some of Caroline's admirers helped her land the job of restoring the structure. Here's how one fan put it in a letter to another one. I was glad
3: that Mr. Wheeler responded to this desire on my part, that she should be given the work and paid for it. It would make her feel better to know she was earning something, while they, in the meanwhile, will see that she is housed and fed and clothed if necessary. I sent her $10, which she will receive early tomorrow morning,
1: special delivery. This gives her time to finish up what she wants to pack. Despite many hardships, Caroline held fast to her work as an artist. She reported to the census taker in 1910 that she still had a working studio in her home. And she told him to list her occupation as sculptor. She died three years later, in her early 70s. In 1949, some three decades after her death, Miss Irene Dixon, possibly Caroline's great-granddaughter we don't really know, left her archives with the Chicago Historical Society. Amidst the disorganized papers was Caroline's high school notebook with its drawings in the margins and a collection of newspaper clippings Each story cut out and paired with its masthead and the date before being pasted onto special scrapbook pages. And her important letters, the ones Caroline wrote to the patent office and ones from her famous friends, Mrs. Vanderbilt and Lucy Webb Hayes, and her exhibitor pass, torn and ripped and with frayed edges from that 1876 World's Fair, the first to be held on American soil. All those papers and memories. Every bit of surviving material from Caroline's life's work fit into one box. Caroline Shockbrooks is not a name studied in art history classes or, frankly, known widely in the Midwest. It's not even known in Iowa, where we take our butter sculpting pretty seriously. Working on this podcast was the first time I'd heard of her. Even though butter is what rocketed Caroline to fame, it's probably why she's forgotten today, Darcy says.
3: As America fell in love with technology and cars and radio and TV and all these technological changes are happening in the wider world, it might just look a little hokey, perhaps, to audiences towards the end of her life. Oh, that's cute and that's nice for your fare, but Technology's moved on. We want something flashier and more exciting. That could be part of what happened here.
1: And I can't know for sure, but I suspect Caroline sort of knew that the butter thing would always be a bit of a sideshow. It's why she went to Florence. It's why she got trained in marble by the masters of the craft. So she'd be able to say, hey, look, you professional artists, I can do it too. But to them she'd never be more than that butter lady. Despite the jeers, Caroline embraced her connection to butter and her standing as an everywoman. She understood that the quirkiness, the peculiarity of butter, opened doors for her that weren't available to most farmers' wives in the 1870s. And she exploited the novelty, even if she held deep hopes to be seen as a more serious artist. In one interview, Carolyn acknowledged how important butter had been for her career and encouraged other women to make art from what they had at their disposal, no matter how humble. Butter had liberated her, and it could liberate others too. Women inspired by her story sent letters and photos of their butterwork. One she kept in her files was from a woman who included a photograph of a female bus she'd made out of butter when at the centennial, I was
4: very much interested in your sleeping island. The thought occurred to me that possibly I might
1: entertain myself at least with an attempt at butter sculpting. I thought it might be entertaining to you to know that your effort in this direction had aroused in the hearts of others. A few years after that letter arrived in 1877, a speaker declared to more than 300 women gathered for a suffrage convention that Caroline's story is, quote, worthy of a special tablet in the monument to the indomitable perseverance of woman," unquote. Caroline was a feminist pioneer, Darcy says, plain and simple. She's a
3: strong, fierce woman that literally carved her own path at a time when that was not common for women. I mean, we're talking the pre-suffrage era before women had the vote. And so she was doing things that were very non-traditional, but really blazed a trail for a whole new generation of women.
1: And what about the butter sculpting of it all? Well, Caroline's impact on the art form was evident to at least one critic at the Chicago World's Fair which opened about 20 years after the Philadelphia Fair, where Dreaming Iolanthe debuted. In Chicago, the critic noted, at least three other women presented sculptures created out of butter.
5: It was only a few years ago that some progressive individual made a bas-relief of butter modeled in a flat pan, which was called Iolanthe. From that pan of butter evolved the bouquets of butter, wreaths of butter, and little houses of butter to be seen through glass doors in ice boxes in the dairy building.
3: She really did inspire a whole new generation of butter sculptors because by the early 1900s, you start seeing more of these state fairs having things like cows sculpted in butter. You can still find them at state fairs across the country today.
1: For Darcy, who lives and farms on the land her family has owned for more than 100 years, Caroline proves that rural America has a rich legacy that is often overlooked, in my opinion.
3: I do feel connected to Caroline. You don't even have to be on a farm to understand hardship in life. And when things turn against you and your back's against the wall and you've got to come up with solutions and you've got to figure it out yourself. We've all faced those circumstances. And you look at what she did. She had no professional art training. She could have just said well, who am I to think I can go out and become a a butter sculptress and that people would even care to see my work? But she just kept at it. She was obviously gutsy and fearless and was willing to take a chance. How can you not like somebody with that kind of spirit?
1: And for Sarah, the Iowa State Fair butter sculptor, Caroline is an inspiration every single time she steps into that world-famous butter cooler and gets ready for another fair.
2: I love how, like, she took what she had and found a way to make it her passion. Here she is. She's like, I am making butter, and I am selling butter, and yet I can find a way to take my passion and live it through this. All of these people touch each other's lives, and yeah, for sure. Like, it weaves all the way back to Caroline and... Yeah, that's why I love history, because we're all connected.
1: As I think about Caroline's life, I can't help but think about Iolanthe. Iolanthe found herself with a chance to leave the garden. She could get out and live a brand new life, but only if she wanted to. Her happy ending wasn't passive. She wasn't just waiting for the kiss like Sleeping Beauty. No, she had to take the first step. She had to say, Yes. Caroline found herself in a similar position. She could have seen dreaming Iolanthe and its fame as a lark. She could have returned to the farm with a story and a handful of newspaper clippings and lived a quiet, hey, whatever happened to her, kind of life. Or she could use butter to find independence. And to travel the great cities of Europe. And to hold the attention of thousands while she lost herself in art. And to make a name for herself, no matter how faded that name may have become since. She could use butter to do all that. But she had to want it. And she had to keep wanting it. And she did.
0: Thanks to Courtney Crowder for bringing us today's story. You can read her reporting in the pages of the Des Moines Register. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters.
1: I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer Caroline Rickert. I'm Alex Kern-Carterelli, and I'm an associate producer. I'm Lindsay Polavoy, and I'm the TV and podcast intern.
4: I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator
0: and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio, with sound design supervision by... Matt Boynton, Scoring, mixing, and sound design by...
5: Anya Gjeshik
0: Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music. Additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson.
1: and Margolis.
5: Is our
0: Director of Host Production, and our Director of Production is...
1: Diane Knox.
0: Fact-checking and additional research by...
1: Sarah D. Collins.
0: Special thanks to Darcy Malsby, Sarah Pratt and her daughters, Grace and Hannah, and Pamela Simpson, whose scholarship on Midwestern folk traditions is second to none. Do check out her book, Icons of Abundance, The History of Corn Palaces and Butter Sculpture. Thanks also to our voice actors, Javier Pruski, Baron Bass, Gina DeMay, Lucy Morgan, Danny Polavoy, and our intern, Lindsay Polavoy. Hey Lindsay, good luck at BU this semester.
4: Jack Bishop
0: is the Chief Creative Officer, and Dan Surratt is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, the Mango Board and Plugra Premium Butter. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.